Ah, ils ont déjà le micro Ok, il a essayé. Hey. Okay. Hey, 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 it works. Okay, we are missing one um, one of our panelists. Uh, was there? He was in the he was in the other room, but uh, must have gotten must have gotten lost. Um, I suggest we uh, we start. Um, we have a big topic, and not that much time, so uh, I don't think we should uh, we should delay this uh, this this further. So uh, let me just give a, a few words of uh, of introduction. Uh, to this topic, I see we have a, we have a full room, and uh, we have a great panel, and I suppose there is a reason why uh, we have a full room, uh, is that uh, trade and trade policy and trade wars is unfortunately uh, again uh, a term uh, that has been uh, every day in our in our screens and in our newspapers. And uh, I think we are really, uh, you know, we say that almost every year on every topic, uh, we are the crossroads. Uh, but I think this time, uh, the prediction that we are the crossroads uh, about the, uh, the trading system uh, is really coming, uh, coming true. Um, again, as I said, the, the news uh, every day. Uh, about some of the big players, uh, China and the U.S. Uh, obviously, but others, uh, is uh, is not very very good. And I think uh, we should uh, we should be worried about the the system. Uh, we should be worried also about some of the uh, macroeconomic uh, implication of what's going on. So it's not just you know what is going to happen in some month at the end of the year uh, about the WTO and the uh, the appellate body. Uh, it's also about uh, what's happening right now uh, in trade and the implications of that 
for uh, the global economy and for the, the global uh, trading, uh, trading system. So the way we are going to do this panel is as follows. I've asked each uh, of the panelists uh, to speak just for five minutes to start with, to give uh, his or her uh, point, uh, you know, what do they think is really the, the essential, uh, essential issue here. And then we will have uh, a bit of a conversation uh, among the panel members, and then obviously there will be uh, plenty of time uh, for the room uh, to react, to come in, uh, to, pose, uh, to pose questions. So uh, I'm going to start with you, uh, Alicia. Uh, you and I, uh, we wrote this, uh, this memo to the incoming uh, trade commissioner that uh, was already addressed in, uh, in the previous session. But, uh, you know, where, where should Europe uh, trade policy go, uh, in your view? Uh, and it's not where it should go in five years from now. Where should it go right from the start as the new commissioner uh, is taking on, is taking on a, a very hot seat and, uh, you know, with no time sort of to look at what is the situation and to make up her or his mind about where to go, uh, one way is to plunge immediately. So what, what would you tell uh, the commissioner? What should be uh, a priority for uh, EU trade policy? And that in five minutes. Okay, so I'm going to be quick, first of all, because you can actually read the memo and the conclusions. And I can't deviate much because my co-author is sitting right behind, so it, uh, besides, so I really can't. But, but I will in Q&A, if you allow me. Um, so basically there, what we say is, do what you've always tried to do, you know, push for the WTO to survive. Uh, you're, we don't say that, but I would say that Robin Hood, meaning, you know, just, just do it, just, just, just save the world um, in, in its multilateralism. And that's all fine. But at the end of the day, we need more allies. I mean, we can't do that alone. Uh, for that matter, we already have our single market. I mean, it's, so, so we, we need to forge, which we do say they're alliances. We need to kind of indicate to the US and of course to China, which also wants to reform the WTO, we just don't happen to agree in the way we would both reform the WTO. So I guess we need to forge alliances of what we say very, very clearly in our memo, uh, like-minded uh, alliances, yeah? So, so think about Australia, Canada, the usual suspects, and, and try to, to basically push it from there. Now, there's two ways to do it within the WTO, and, or without the WTO. Imagine that by December, the WTO is no longer uh, functioning, or at least not its appellate body, and we need to start thinking of other ways to do it. So in the memo, we kind of cover the two uh, possibilities. Um, uh, in, in, the, in, in the case in which we wouldn't have a WTO to push with, it would have, we would have to replicate, basically, the institutions we have now, or the... Or the the institutions or the ways of working for that multilateral trading system, which we have now. Think about um, 
you know, a different type of appellate body outside of the WTO. All of that, I think, are things that the new commissioner has to really start working on because we are very close to that crossroads as to whether we can do it with the WTO or, unfortunately, without the WTO. Then we, we look at bilateral agreements. So, of course, uh, not at the speed of light, I must say, based on the Mercosur, but certainly better than nothing, meaning we did, we have indeed achieved a number of uh, free trade agreements in, with, with, the, uh, with the commissioner that, uh, with the commission that is now ended. Um, but certainly for the new commissioner, there's no time to waste. I mean, it has to be much faster. And, and this is simply because that first option, the multilateral trading system, might not be there, no matter whether we can find some like-minded alliances. These alliances may not be strong enough or relevant enough, given that we're not thinking of the US and China at the very beginning of that alliances. And finally, I think we all realize that we're increasingly trading less goods. You just have to look at the data. I mean, it is basically trading volume is at zero growth now, and it's not only because of the tariffs. Uh, so we have to think about services, e-commerce, investment as a very, very important tool, and climate change. So anything we do will have to be more uh, comprehensive in terms of free trade agreements, be it under the WTO, without the WTO, or bilaterally than it has ever been. So I can't, uh, I can't think of anybody taking that job, <laughs> you know, or probably there will be candidates, but my point is it will be harder than ever. So that's my five minutes, I guess. Great. Uh, thanks, Alicia. So uh, let me now move to Yi. Uh, um, Chinese, but uh, not a Chinese official, a Chinese uh, academic based in, uh, in, uh, in Geneva. Exactly. In the, the, the city of multilateralism. Yes, so, Yi, what is, uh, what is your view on this, uh, on this matter, uh, where we are at this crossroads? Okay, follow up uh, the question and the discussion with Alicia by emails. Thank you very much for inviting me here. I will try to prov provide two evidence based on my ongoing research, summary research related to trade, conflict, and uh, e-commerce. And at the end, I will try to provide, I would like to provide some policy implication because I saw some of my, my, my former colleagues, former boss here, so I want to provide some suggestion to looking forward. What can we do? Number one, trade conflict. What's the effect between China and US trade conflict? I will not mention about war, because based on our research, it's, it haven't done yet in terms of trade conflict. Result as following. Number one, you, if you look at short-term response, think, look at US capital market, China capital market. So story turn compared to you are after you are trying to trade war trade conflicts. So story turn decline, default risk increase, bond return decline. People will ask why? What's linkage by only trade, China U.S. trade conflict by announcement? What's China's? Let's think deeper as we taught in this class. Number one, direct exposure between U.S. China linkage. You export import directly for final goods. Number one. Number two, look at intermediate goods. U.S. import Chinese intermediate goods for the final goods for apples, finally produce uh, paratos. Number two, more importantly, more importantly, I have to repeat three times, more importantly, we live in a globalization 2.0, so-called global value chain. You look at one customers, one factory, who never have inter any direct exposure with China, U.S., but your supplier, 
your supplier of a supplier, your customer, your customer, customer, if we, if we study very carefully through input output linkage, through the network, through the customer, supplier, the third more important US-China linkage through is the indirect exposure. Follow global value chain, which innovated by my colleagues in Geneva, Richard Bowen and his colleagues. Okay? It's very important. If you're interested to look at the papers, you can download from my website. It's number one in terms of US-China direct trade conflicts through the US capital market. Because second more important is uncertainties. Uncertainties to between US-China, two biggest economy, will spread over to the real economy. Firm delay to investment. Worker delays consumers. In the end, uncertainty can change the real investment in long terms. Thirdly, as a very important relationship with the trade relationship with the Europe, so-called spillovers. If China have a problem with US, a lot of neighbor countries got benefit in paper. If you look at Vietnam, Cambodia, yes, short term, a lot of multinational companies move to this low wage area. But more importantly, for trade, or benefit from trade, not only the number for export, more importantly, it's efficiency, skilled workers. A lot of factor matters. That's why in the end, we can look at how to reshape global value chain. E EU area will never ex escape from these kind of uh, connections. That's why I say, let's look at looking forward. Next step, how can we eliminate the cost of uh, trade liberalizations, trade increations, how to learn and uh, benefit more in the future in terms of uh, trade integrations, which I will talk about second part of my research about e-commerce. Do I have one minute? Yes, you do. Okay, uh, follow up on my research, use uh, with the biggest e-commerce company in China, every single transaction data from Alibaba Group. We try to understand what's the benefit, what's new about e-commerce. Number one, daily trading volume for e-commerce in China, on average, you know, on average in this past two years, five trillion US dollar in the volumes. Annual growth rate, more than 10%. If you look at online consumer spendings, more than two trillion RMB. I'll give you one example. In China, we also have a so-called Black Friday. One day trading volume, 350 billion US dollar in November 11th by last year's numbers. What's benefit for e-commerce? Number one, they reduce surging costs, online, offline. Secondly, reduce price. More importantly for economics, we all, uh, uh, for macroeconomics, we will look very closely about income equality, consumption e equalities, how to make poor people, old people, different hydrogenetic cross regions, rural area. How can they consume different kind of products like we had in Brussels, in London, in Geneva? Number two, benefits are huge. How to promote there? The two very important phenomena, to promote e-commerce, which I think is very important for EU in the future to collaborate with China, collaborate with the emerging market. Number one, finance. Consumer financing is very important. Now fintech company, big tech company like Alibaba, like Tencent, like Amazon, they provide credit to online consumers. Based on my recent work with the BIS Yongxin and his team, we look at a big tech company, provide credit, promote <coughs> consumptions. It's number one. Number two, technology. Once technology in China, for example, 4G, 5G, once a village, a mountain access internet, they can tra trade, they can do export, they can sell the stuff to rural area, remote area, to, from Tibet to Shanghai, cheaply. The finally, very important for a lot of people from business environment, how to understand so-called new retailers, new retailers, because people always say online e-commerce is going to clouding out offline, like uh, real shops, because if I follow my research, we found that it's opposite. 
because information transformations, they give people more direct information to combine two things together. If I have time, I can talk more, but in the end, you know, trade, consumptions, and promotions between China and US, one thing missing here is global international financial systems, internet currency. I will leave this, uh, uh, this discussion, to, uh, this part to the discussion part, Q&A part. Thank you. Very good. Um, so just one word. Uh, I mean, if we still have the WTO in, uh, in a few months from now, uh, certainly the e-commerce e uh, issue, uh, which is already high on the agenda, uh, will be obviously even bigger on the, uh, not bilateral, but on the multilateral agenda. So Kate, I'm, uh, I'm turning to you. Uh, you are the uh, representative here in, in town uh, from uh, USTR. Uh, there's been a lot of uh, activity uh, since you have been here. Um, I think you were last year in the uh, in the panel that we had on on trade. Um, so in one year, many things have happened. Uh, many things had happened already the year before, but uh, many more things have happened, both in in the bilateral uh, relationship, obviously, and in the uh, the multilateral agenda where. The U.S. Is, uh, has been obviously a, a big, uh, a big actor. So, what is your, uh, what is your point uh, that you want to bring to this uh, this panel, and that relates, in a sense, to uh, EU trade policy? You know, from a U.S. perspective. Yeah, exactly. I, I'm happy in a Q&A to talk a bit about some of the U.S. trade policy directions, and I'm sure there are many questions, as I often receive them in lots of fora. But what I'd like to focus on is, is picking up a bit on, on what Alicia mentioned in terms of like-minded allies, because I recognize and I hear a great deal of rhetoric which paints the United States on one side of the agenda and the EU on another and directly conflicting with one another. That rhetoric, frankly, is, is in many of the papers that you drafted for the incoming commission, and I think it doesn't really reflect the reality on the ground. And the reality on the ground, as far as I see it, is that the United States and the European Union continue to share a great deal of views, whether it has to do with reform of the multilateral trading system, um, whether it has to do with how we address non-market economies and their role and impact on that multilateral trading system and how we work together in a lot of areas in the world. And I want to talk just a bit about what we saw in Europe over the past couple years under the leadership, frankly, of the European Parliament and, and Chairman Longa, and it was quite an interesting move uh, on a number of the areas that we've focused on and what I would like to see if I had advice for the new commissioner, it would be to continue that work. And what we saw, of course, led again by the Parliament was a number of initiatives to address the non-market economy in Europe and a bolstering of the European trade defense in terms of trade defense modernization, a reform of anti-dumping methodology, an investment screening procedure extended throughout Europe, which reflects a shared view on how we address dumping, on how we address the impacts of excess capacity, how we address impacts of um, aggressive and erroneous investment in our economies. And this is work that we, we share, we work behind the scenes, we work with Japan in the trilateral context, and we want to continue that work. We also saw, of course, the Juncker Commission in March issue a very wide-sweeping communication, which for the first time described China as a strategic rival. This is very much in line with the U.S. position, which I should say also 
hasn't changed much over the last several administrations in terms of our concerns vis-a-vis -vis China and the WTO. Our tactics certainly have changed, have become a bit more heightened, uh, but it builds on years and years of consistent and troubling analysis regarding our partner in the East. Finally, I would mention that the premise perhaps that I disagree with most in your paper is the one that paints the EU as a victim in this greater Sino-US battle. I, I fundamentally reject that. The European Union and its member states are among the most important and significant economies in the world. European businesses have interests that are very similar to those of the American companies in terms of economic longevity and survival. And I think the EU and the new commission team needs to address this question head on, not only as a bystander in a U.S.-China trade war, but as an active participant in how we address these issues. Great. Uh, that, was, uh, that was very clear. Um, no, Bernd, <laughs> uh, let, me, let me turn to you. Uh, you have been uh, re-elected as the chair of the uh, INTA, uh, INTA committee. Uh, the committee met uh, yesterday and, uh, and the day before. Um, so uh, obviously it's uh, going to have the hearing with the, the, new, uh, the new commissioner. So what is the, uh, in your view, what is the, the, the position of the, not only just the committee, but the, the European Parliament uh, as far as uh, the EU trade policy for the next five years? Uh, what would you see as the, uh, the, the priorities. Yes, um, thanks a lot. And of course, I read your mem memo very carefully and the uh, three um, recommendations on page uh, 183, the uh, multilateral and uh, WTO, the question of bilateral relations and put services on the table. Yes, I agree, no doubt about. Um, to um, stabilize the ruling of law instead of the rule of the jungle. And indeed, we have some differences uh, in accepting the rule of law. We have a lot of cases, the Boeing Airbus case, the Spanish Olives, the steel terrorists, and so on, which are, in our view, not in line with the rule of law of international trade law. But this we can discuss. But in addition to your memo, I think we should reflect three further elements. Because I think your memo is really written from the hill of trade experts. Sometimes the people on the ground have a different perspective. They ask me, who is benefiting from trade? They ask me, what brings trade to my job? Is there job loses, uh, loss uh, with, with trade? And they ask me, what is the contribution of trade to the Paris Climate Agreement and uh, to the fight against climate change. So the perspective is quite different. And I think if we would not lose the support of the electors, the people, then we have to give an answer to this question as well. So I would really add three further points. First point is sustainability. Yes, we have to make clear that trade is in line with the SDGs, in line with universal labor laws, universal environmental standards. And this is not an easy task. Huh? So we have to reflect how we can introduce 
core labor standards in trade agreements, perhaps also make a link between WTO and sustainability to the SDGs, so that we make clear, yes, trade it has an impact on the, on, on the well-being of people here in Europe and also in the partner countries. Secondly, implementation and enforcement. At the moment, I think we can't change the government in the United States or the government in China. They have their own strategy. But we should really look on the effect on our existing possibilities. So implementation of trade agreements. Sometimes we have a use rate for small and medium-sized enterprises from 40% of uh, trade preferences. That's not enough. The question of rules of origin are so complicated that normal people are not really able to understand the system. So the implementation of the possibilities specifically for small and medium-sized enterprises has to be improved dramatically so that there is a clear message you and your jobs can benefit from trade. And also the enforcement procedure. Huh? So we have a lot of agreements and lot of uh, common understanding with uh, uh, holy words, but in practice the situation looks quite different. Huh? We have some sometimes difference with China on the custom code. Uh, we have practical questions with other uh, countries. We have now the situation with South Korea, where South Korea is not uh, implementing uh, three core labor, ILO core labor standards for seven years, and now we have the first time the enforcement procedure. So enforcement, by the way, the uh, trade defense instruments are belonging also to enforcement of trade policy, and I'm really proud that we could modernize our TDI system and also could create this alternative um, regulation method. And uh, at the moment, nobody made a case uh, in Geneva against this new methodology. And this is a big, big success uh, of the European trade policy, by the way, also from the European Parliament. And um, third point, coherence of trade policy with other policies. We have a big transformation in automotive sector now because of the digitalization, because of uh, switch to e-mobility, and um, also between because of competition and some measures uh, here on the table. Uh, so we need a transition form. We need really look how to react on that. We have to eliminate some trade barriers um, uh, and. Uh, we have to be consistent also in our policy. Yes, modernization of WTO, no doubt about it. You spoke on, on e-commerce, 80 countries are uh, uh, with us. But the only element where all partners on the table are negotiated at the moment are the subsidies for fishery and the capacity for fishery. And to be honest, it is not really serious. On the one hand, we want to cut the subsidies and eliminate new capacity for fishing. And in our European fishery policy, we make now the door open for new capacity. That's not the way we should deal with. So coherence is the third necessary element. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Bernd. Um, 
No, I see in the uh, in the room uh, many faces of people who are not uh, trade experts. Uh, they are macro uh, people, and uh, I I understand very much why there are here uh, people. Uh, you know, not just the trade experts who are you know interested in anti-dumping or the tariffs or you know what's going on in in the global value chains. Uh, but from a macroeconomic perspective, are, are very worried uh, of what is, uh, what is going on. And uh, therefore, it's great to have uh, a macro person with us uh, on the panel, uh, Reza. Um, you know, what do you make out of this? Uh, from a financial perspective, from a macro perspective, uh, you know, what is your take on what's going on here? Uh, thank you, Andre. Very good to be here with seeing a lot of uh, old friends and colleagues. Uh, as you said, I feel some, something of an imposter on this, uh, on this panel, given the depth of expertise on trade, which I simply cannot match. But uh, what you said, I think, is very important. First of all, I thought maybe I give a brief overview of the financial market impact and then go into some of the uh, economics, uh, time permitting. I think from a market's point of view, there have been uh, really three phases to the perception of the trade disputes. Uh, the first phase, I would say, the first half of 2018. Uh, and I would characterize that as mild concern in the markets. Mild concern because there were initial statements um, by, uh, by the US administration and China in terms of trade tariffs small imposition of tariffs, but against the background where the global economy, particularly the, UK, the US economy, was very strong. So the concern was mild. Then there is a second phase between the middle of 2018 and the middle of this year, where the concern was heightened because there were greater number of measures, much larger measures, uh, a much larger proportion of global trade being subject to tariffs, but also a period where the global economy was slowing down. And, but the concern was heightened, but there was a sense of optimism. And the sense of optimism was there because of a perception in the markets that the two uh, main protagonists in this issue were talking and they were giving positive signals of potential progress. Now, we have now entered the third phase from about May this year, where there is alarm, if you wish, in the markets. So i give you one example. If you look at the US stock market in the month of August, you have incredibly sharp movements, uh, you have three episodes where the stock market falls by and rises by about 5%. Very, very unusual. And not all of those episodes, but generally speaking, uh, the majority of those episodes were on the basis of announcements on tariffs, uh, particularly the latest announcements by the US, and the signal that the markets are taking that one, this process is going to take longer than expected to, to sort out, and that now the, the 
tariffs have risen to such an extent that it is likely to affect the profitability of the corporate sector across the world. So, uh, so we are in, in that phase right now. But what, are, what about the macro implications? I think clearly number one, as he mentioned, is uncertainty. And you see that in the, in the uh, stock markets, but I think uh, relevant from a policy point of view, it is the fact that there is a very, very strong flight to safe assets. Uh, assets which are traditionally perceived as safe. You see that on both sides of the Atlantic in terms of uh, long-term bonds, government bonds. You do actually see that in the corporate sector, corporate investment uh, grade bonds also, and you see that in currencies across the world. So that, that's number one. And it has policy implications, and I will come back uh, to that in terms of policy implications. <coughs> oh, one minute, okay, then I will not be able to tell you about the policy <laughs> implications. <laughs> I will, I'll, I'll just set the, the scene for later. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. Uh, uh, number two, investment. And it, we are at historic low interest rates, negative interest rates even faced by some corporates, but we do, we do not see investment. Remember, after the US tax cuts, after some of the other measures across the world, there was great hope mm -hmm. of investment coming back uh, in a strong way, particularly in the technology sector. Simply, the data does not show that. Uh, number three, exchange rates. Uh, again, relevant for policy. Economic theory tells you if you impose tariffs and you're generally the, the, the uh, perception of assets do not change in the capital account, exchange rate moves to rebalance trade, and that's precisely what you have seen. There are other factors, I admit, precisely what you have seen in terms of the dollar and what you have seen in terms of the yuan. Final point, I'll set the scene for discussion of policies later, what Europe, what US, what China should do. Final point, inflation. Now, traditionally, tariffs have been associated with higher inflation. We don't see that across the world, in fact, quite the reverse. But, just one factoid before I stop, if you look at the detailed US data and look at split up the CPI between those goods that are subject to tariff and those who are not, you see that uh, CPI for the tariffed goods are much, much higher. In fact, for the rest of the goods, it's negative, and therefore, you see that the CPI has not increased that much. But there is a question for policy. Do you see through that? What's the implication for you? But maybe later on, I come back to how each, uh, uh, how each region needs to respond in terms of macro policies. Very good. Um, so I think that that was very useful to, to hear, in a sense, for the trade people. Because, uh, you know, trade, uh, trade people, uh, trade negotiators, uh, trade people, they're more micro people, they're more sectoral. Uh, they're used to think, you know, this product, the impact and uh, the distribution uh, element. Uh, they're not used to think and uh, in a sense, luckily, they're not used to think that trade actions are going to have macro uh, implications, right? Uh, even if you do something on steel and stuff, you know, uh, 
it still uh, it still remain uh, very 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 small it may have an impact on on the steel sector and maybe a bit on the steel users but you know that that doesn't yet reach macroeconomic uh, implications uh, i think in a sense this time is different um, again the 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 backdrop is also one of uh, of fragilities in 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 general but certainly uh, i think one hears it from from all of the uh, observers from the imf from everywhere that you know when you are looking at the downside risks trade is always one of the one or two or maximum three uh, downside risks to the uh, to the global economy uh, that are put uh, that are put forward so i think it's it's very useful to have not just a trade a more sectoral uh, perspective but also a macroeconomic perspective and as i said uh, at the start i think that is also part of of this uh, crossroad uh, situation because that you know as implication where's the global system going and you know is it really a change you know we have had uh, a period uh, a very uh, prosperous period certainly uh, china that entered uh, the w in 2001 was a major a major change uh, there is no doubt and now we are nearly 20 years later and uh, indeed one needs to uh, reassess uh, reassess the system so let, let let me turn back to the um, to the trade people before i go again to uh, to Reza and to the to the to the macro um now um you know kate uh, you 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 you're right i think you made uh, very good uh, very good points uh, about the eu uh, you know where does the eu stand here uh, it's not just between uh, the US and, and China, and then one can discuss, is it closer to one, is it closer to the other one? And obviously the EU, uh, which is an economy of the same size roughly as, uh, as the US and, and China, get to be also autonomous in its capacity to shape the system, not just in reaction and not just position itself uh, between the two others. At the same time, it's clear that those three actors uh, the US, uh, China, and the EU are the ones that have the most systemic uh, impact, right? So where, uh, where those actors uh, will shape the system is where the system uh, will, uh, will go in the, coming, uh, in the coming years. So that, that's what I, I want to take you all a little bit to. Um, you know, I'm, I'm personally not, you know, to put my cards on the table, um, and maybe also because I'm a bit older than uh, the other panelists here. Um, when I look at this uh, US-China, um, it's more than a dispute uh, by this time. Uh, it's basically a war. Uh, it does remind me, obviously, uh, of uh, an earlier episode, uh, US-Japan. Um, and but I think there is a huge difference between U.S. Japan. You know, U.S. Japan was pretty pretty fierce. Um, I mean, I lived in the U.S. at the time, and uh, I mean it was Japan, Japan, Japan every day, just like it's now China every day in the news uh, in the U.S. Then it was it was Japan, and uh, but I think there is a and in a sense, the U.S. Japan was resolved through different uh, mechanisms, including bilateral. Uh, discussions. Um, obviously, the the geopolitical relationship between the U.S. and Japan uh, is and was 
at the time of the fights, uh, very different from the uh, geopolitical relationship between the U.S. and, uh, and China. Uh, war and troops and all of those kind of, uh, of issues. So I'm personally not one who believes, and I would like to hear a little bit from, from the panel members, include, including from a U.S. perspective, from a Chinese perspective, and then from a, a European perspective. I'm not one who believes, I just put my cards on the table, that bilateral uh, discussion between the US and China will resolve the problem. Uh, it's just not there. So it may uh, solve uh, some uh, very short-term issues. Sure, there are elections coming in the US and you know, there are all kinds of things that one needs to get over. But I think the matter uh, that has been put forward, not by this, only by this U.S. president, but one, what one hears quite a lot in, in the U.S. shared, you know, quite large, quite broadly, is that, yes, the, there, is, uh, there is a bigger uh, issue here between the U.S. and China that's simply short-term. And as I said, I don't think that this can be resolved bilaterally. And it seems to me that the only way one can resolve, and this is where I think that uh, Europe is indeed a huge role to play with this like-minded uh, countries uh, is through uh, the WTO, through the multilateral uh, route. Uh, so I want to, I, I, I would like to hear from uh, the different panelists uh, what they think. Do they think that, do they believe that uh, there is a bilateral uh, solution to the problems or that it's not possible? And if it's not possible, will it be possible to have a multilateral solution? Or is that not possible either? And they where uh, where are we? Let me start with you, Bernd, on this. Of course, uh, I'm also convinced that uh, the stabilization of the trading system is only possible in the multilateral way. And therefore, the clear point of the European side, the Commission and the Parliament that we stick to the rule of WTO in all our action we do. We will have the problem with the appellate body in December, you mentioned it. Uh, so we rejected any proposal to go out of the system and create some, some alternative. We stick to the system and we are trying to find a solution in the system. And yes, the um, upcoming problems and yeah, you're right, we have some similar interests. The question of uh, protection of IPR, no doubt about, or the question of state-owned enterprises. But this we want to solve inside the WTO. We created some possibilities with like-minded uh, uh, countries to go ahead with these problems inside the WTO. And um, I hope a lot of further countries will join. We you mentioned the e-commerce, the uh, IPI, the, uh, the, 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 trade fa uh, the investment facilitation uh, system. So there are moments where we are going ahead. And indeed, um, specifically on the e-commerce, I see also a bridge building function because it's not like in several other negotiations inside the WTO that we have uh, the really important uh, Western countries and the suffering uh, southern countries, we have a really bridge function with e-commerce. So there are some perspectives inside 
WTO. But this requires, of course, that everybody, the 164 members of WTO, will go ahead in the same line. And this is a little bit complicated. For example, the appellate body, we are waiting still for some proposals to reform the model so that everybody can stick to these two-stage approaches for an independent appellate body. Um, and this is necessary. And there we need really a lot of talks, a lot of uh, perhaps G20 and G7 action that everybody is on board. But indeed, a solution for the problem, specifically regarding the global value change, 70% are based, uh, of trade are based on global value chains are not possible to solve in a bilateral way. Kate, let's go down sure. this tree. Yeah, Kate. Well, it may surprise you, but the United States does believe the WTO has a really important role to play in these discussions. And I'm frankly, not, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not surprised. Uh, frankly, nothing surprises me at this stage, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> Um, you know, frankly, you described our former adversary, Japan, which now is a very strong ally in Absolutely. our in our work in the WTO with the EU to try to address many of these issues in a more systemic fashion. We think that's important. Um, in the rollout of our uh, Section 301 investigation against the problems that we saw in China on forced technology transfer, joint venture requirements, um, cyber theft, et cetera, one outcome of that was a WTO case. We do believe in the system. We want to use the system. And I'll remind you as well, I mean, you noted uh, in your comments that when China joined in 2001, it was a, it was a monumental change in the WTO. And, and we supported China joining the WTO at that time because we saw a trajectory which brought China in line with the system that we in the EU were, were founding members of. Over time, of course, that has not come to pass. Um, we have now stated publicly that, that Chinese policies now uh, are so at odds with the policies of the market-based trading system that perhaps it was a mistake in 2001 to have, have allowed them in. And we need to address with that problem. So a multilateral discussion or a trilateral discussion, which I'll remind you, our ministers have met seven times in the past two years on this very issue, which demonstrates a strong commitment to the multilateral trading system. But we are a bit clear-eyed, perhaps, about the shorter-term prospects there. Dialogue is important. Multilateral dialogue is very important. But when we talk to China or when we see the past decade of interaction with the Chinese government at presidential levels, we see the same commitments made over and over again, but no follow-through. And when we have reports that detail $50 billion in annual losses to American intellectual property, to say, well, let's negotiate an agreement in the WTO where we don't have much success, and we can talk about things like fish, which we should be able to get to an agreement on, but we can't for other, other fundamental problems at the WTO. Uh, we, we have to take action to defend our interests, and that's what you see this administration doing. Not turning its back to the multilateral system, but, but, but recognizing that there are limitations to what the multilateral system can do at this point, and so therefore having to defend our interests. E? Okay, thank you very much, and uh, thank you very much for asking a lot of good questions. Let me come in from a very narrow-minded uh, academic perspective, because we look at the things from one hand, left, left hand side, right hand side, and invisible hands. So let me start it. Number one, WTO, we mentioned about a lot, sorry, it's a bad joke. So WTO already started 2001. It's already past 18 years. US-China, uh, US-Japan conflicts, it's, it's happened a long time ago. Time is different. Let me 
precisely mentioned two things. Number one, in terms of technology change. I just mentioned what's the benefit, what's the cost of a trade opening, trade integrations. One thing we don't, most people coming from competition side. But another thing about technology, technology uh, improvement, for example, the cost, uh, the benefit maybe is the price, CPI decline because of a lot of cheap export, cheap goods from China. But on the other hand, what happened to the technology? If there was a job lose, there might be in the future, like looking forward, after looking forward, it's a robot, it's a replace a job. Good job, replace bad job. It's evidence not from China. Look at a recent paper by Stanford professor Nick Blom, and my recent work used the Korean data, so-called trading with benefit. By trading, a lot of technology Im improvement to push, because China joined WTO, to push European firms upgrade to more innovations, upgrade the supply chain, upgrade the technologies, integrate, reduce cost. A lot of endogenous change in terms of technology movement. That's why cost the benefit from trade side Another thing coming of technology. Secondly, WTO. So recent AER paper, oh sorry, <laughs> academic paper tried to argue. So more benefit for China joining WTO, not only for export to US, more importantly, it's internal opening. Reduce a lot of distortion historically for land, the credit, everything. And we pay the cost in environment. So it's, it's a, there's no free lunch. It's a benefit or cost. Finally, I think very important, as, as Risa mentioned, very important. We look at externally, Current account, capital account, is saving minus investment. We're living in an environment, long-term return of capital is lower. And nowadays, if you think about deeper about uh, US-China conflict, two major big trading partners have uh, big issues. What happened to equity market? What happened to the uh, commodity market? What happened to the fundamental for international trading, international monetary system? It's FX market. And what's the rule for Euro? A lot of important issues of safe assets. I believe there's a lot of way to use very careful academic research to looking forward, follow the f current research. But last but not least, I live in Geneva. My office in my left-hand side is WTO, right-hand side is WIPOs. So we cannot ask uh, WTO to everything. WIPO, International in Intelligent Pro Property Organization, they do a lot of research. And recent one final conclusion, in terms of Chinese R&D, Chinese firm patent, uh, not only patent per se, the number, also, patent citation, patent qualities. Foreign side of Chinese patents, majorly coming not from Chinese SOE. It's coming a lot of Chinese private firms. So let's look at data, let's look at academic research, then we have a better understanding about what's going on and looking forward. Thank you. Thanks. Alicia, uh, you are based in uh, Hong Kong, as was said in the, uh, in the, previous, uh, in the previous session. You are also a macroeconomist. And uh, you are very, very keen, and you have been for quite a while, a, a very, very keen observer uh, of the China, of the Chinese economy, and uh, also of the Chinese uh, economic and, uh, and, political, uh, and political system. So what would be your um, estimate, your bet, as to where this dispute, uh, this trade war between uh, China and the U.S. is, is going. Uh, you think that there is uh, a possibility of a bilateral uh, solution, uh, a fix, a solution, uh, or, or um, you think that would be very hard, and you think that um, there is... Uh, 
a possibility of a multilateral uh, solution to this, or, or no solution, or sort of something that is going to, to continue, and then we will come back to, to Reza to tell us what are the consequences of this. Thanks very much. Well, I guess uh, uh, the first thing I would have to say is that for um, um, for the trade war to be solved multilaterally, we would have to be invited to the table. So I, I first I have to start by saying this, that I just can't accept, in a way, as a European, the argument that, you know, we're all in for, for the WTO. So just a direct response to what I heard. I mean, I, I heard the direct response to our memo, and I'm going back to you. I said direct response to your comments. I... Uh, for this to be a multilateral solution, we need to be at the table. And if we aren't, which is the case today, there's a l there is a high price to pay for Europe. That's why we are asking to be at the table. And, and the price is very simple, because as happened with Japan, very same thing, which happened, unfortunately, for Japan, is that when there are two at the table, and one happens to be the hegemon, the conditions tend not to be, uh, I wouldn't say fair, but close to that. And, and what I mean is that if you look at the semiconductor industry in Japan at the time, and what happened to that industry, if you look at the forced or imposed imports of autos at the time from the US into Japan, if you look at the Plaza Accord, if you look at the deflationary prices in Japan since, and the collapse of a bubble, I don't think they're all unrelated to that solution. So what I'm trying to say is that by making it multilateral, I think the solution can be fair or more like agreed upon and probably is even easier for China to accept because in a way, there's no way to get around it. There's no way to get around it. There's no way to come to Merkel and say, you know, we want a bilateral investment agreement with Europe. We want, you know, there's no way for China to gain time for something that I actually think, and this is, from the bottom of my heart, actually loving China very much, what China really needs. China needs to get out of that model for its own sake and for its own benefit down the road. And that model meaning everything that the US and probably Europe doesn't like about the way things work, including a, a, a no market economy status, and which frankly, probably China, you know, would at least part of the leadership would understand that is leading China nowhere in the long run. The return on assets is increasingly low. There is excess capacity. Maybe we solved it in some sectors. It's appearing in others, the auto industry being one, by the way, and that's important for Europe, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So in a way, it's, it's, it's beneficial for everybody. First of all, the US, in a way, because, because by, forcing, uh, by forcing China, the only thing that I think, I mean, the U.S. is going to achieve is making China retrench to a model that is not good for China or the world. And, and that's why I'm, I'm calling for a multilateral uh, solution. Now, Reza, um, we have heard the, the trade uh, side of this. Um, this trade war between uh, the U.S. and, and China, uh, the strong European preference for uh, multilateral uh, solution. I think both in the interest, I think of the, of the EU and interests, sort of also of uh, 
let's say, a, a vision, a political vision of uh, value, uh, a vision of this uh, of this issue. Um, what what do you make out of uh, of what you have heard, and uh, you know, can you add uh, some of the things that you didn't have the time before, but in the light of, of what you no, just I heard? Um, let me just address your question directly and from uh, Europe's perspective. Obviously, having spent most of my life in a multilateral world, I have to support a multilateral world. But uh, two observations. Number one, even in a multilateral system, bilateral discussions are important. Mm -hmm. I mean, look at any time there is a move in Europe on any uh, integration or joint initiative, it does start with a Franco-German proposal. It then gets evolved. So I think it is part of the reality of multilateralism that the larger players need to have bilateral consultation. So, uh, so that's observation number one. Now, observation number two, from a macroeconomic point of view. Suppose that Europe is at the table, and you know the narrative is, well, Europe is not part of the trade dispute right now, and actually wants to avoid it. Uh, but what is it that Europe will bring to the table in a multilateral system? And again, I go back and look at it from a, from a macro point of view. Europe has a very large, persistent trade surplus, which in fact, in, by some measures, is larger than, than China. The question that Europe needs to ask itself and put on the table is how are they going to address that? And what that large and persistent surplus means is that from a macroeconomic point of view, the policy mix in Europe is not working. Uh, it's not working domestically or internationally. So fine, I think definitely a multilateral uh, dialogue helps, but what is it that you in Europe will put on the table in order to address that huge problem. Fair, very fair, a very fair point. So um, let me now open the, uh, the the floor for for discussion. Uh, is are there some uh, microphones? Yes. Okay. So uh, I'll I'll take first uh, three questions. One here in in front. Just one here in front first. Hi, Chong Wei Hua, China Daily. I have a question for Lishu and maybe other panel who want to comment. Uh, it's uh, actually happening today. Uh, Chancellor Merkel is going to China. So we all know she is a close friend of the new commissioner, and some call her a mentor even. So do you think uh, her trip is going to reflect uh, the EU new commissioner's uh, future maybe policy on China, what you would think, or what do you think uh, uh, Chancellor Merkel should and would talk to the Chinese leaders talk, uh, on issues, and uh, especially working, you said, working together uh, with China to address the issues, you know. Uh, and actually very interesting, I, I'm interested in talking about the working together, because uh, there was another talk about the working against China, and actually when uh, President Trump tweeted uh, 15 hours ago. He said the people asked him to uh, 
get together with the EU others to go after China trade practice. He said, uh, no, EU trade is just as unfair or, you know, something like that. Thank you. Um, a second question there. Actually, he helped me to the question, uh, the similar question, but I will read it, the President Trump's Twitter to you all. It's interesting because for all of the genius out there, many who have been in other administrations and taken to the cleaners by China, they want me to get together with the EU and others to go after China trade practices. Remember, the EU and all trade us very unfairly on trade also will change. And the president said on numerous occasions that EU is worse than China. So my question goes to uh, Kate from USTR. Do you agree with your president on this particular point? Um, there's a question here in, uh, in front. Thank you very much, thank you. My question is also similar to what other people have made in terms of multilateral trade negotiation or bilateral. And um, on a recent visit to China, I was quite surprised to hear both state-owned enterprise and private companies also posing that question, asking, you know, what is Europe's position? Will Europe go on the side of China or will they go on the side of the US? So I think this trilateral is something that is also being asked for internally. Thank you. Okay, let me turn to the to the panel. I'm not uh, <laughs> asking you, Kate, to uh, to to take this first. Uh, I I would like first the the Europeans to um, to uh, to respond to to some of those remarks. So, Bernd, what is your? Of course, we have competition even with China and with the United States as well. So. The, the world has changed, no doubt about, and this is the reality, and uh, we have to react on that. And uh, this means indeed that we are really trying to involve the partners in dialogue and in negotiations. Um, well, this is uh, the only um, possibility to, to, to uh, stabilize, and this is also a give and take, no doubt about, and you're quite right. Uh, our surplus in, 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 in goods is, is a problem and we have to react and give something to our trading partner to uh, find a solution. But regarding China, of course, we have also the question of give and take. Huh? So uh, perhaps um, the question of investment is a question we are negotiating with China and uh, <laughs> uh, there's uh, a round coming soon and uh, there's some, some progress. This means on the other side, of course, that we have also to talk to China about state-owned enterprise, and I'm not sure that private companies in China are really private, to be honest, and uh, uh, the, the question of uh, protection of IPR. So there is a give and take uh, to convince the partners which are in competition to respect uh, the ruling, but this means give and take. And uh, yes, I think... Uh, uh, Chancellor Merkel will also mention some of these elements so that if China is playing a fair role in the international system, international rules have to be accepted. And of course, the best way to introduce them and to implement them is on a multilateral way. 
Well, first, the answer is yes, of course I agree with my boss. Um, second, I mean, you can imagine I, I wake up many mornings with, with new tweets, and unfortunately the format of the tweeting, despite the fact that Twitter graciously expanded the content requirements, still make it difficult for me to comment on the nuance or perhaps the environment in which he delivered that tweet. So I'll speak a little bit more generally about what the president has said on multiple occasions, and, and frankly is, is not new to this administration. It's simply that Twitter has changed the way in which these messages are delivered. Um, of course we have concerns with, with barriers that our products face in Europe. We have been trying to address them through lots of different ways. We see them in WTO disputes, of course, uh, a very prominent one about to reach its conclusion after 15 years, which is another discussion about WTO dispute settlement we should talk about. Um, we try to do it through bilateral methods. We have, over time, tried many, many times to negotiate understandings between us, whether it's in the form of a broad free trade negotiation. My, my former hat was associate chief negotiator on TTIP, so I have some experience with that. Um, certainly under this administration, we've looked at more targeted regulatory discussions as an attempt to address some of these persistent regulatory uh, and other non-tariff barriers. So the president is simply conveying something that we hear from our companies and our stakeholders all the time about barriers our products face in Europe. We want to do away with those. That continues to be um, a goal of this administration. It was, it was in the president's first trade policy agenda just after he took office that negotiation, negotiations with Europe continue to be in the best interest of the United States. So, Let, let, let me add a, a, a question, and that uh, relates to the, to the last point that you made, uh, Reza, uh, which is obviously a, a, a good point. Um, that, you know, however uh, we may, or we do wish to, uh, to privilege a multilateral framework, that doesn't mean that uh, bilateral discussions uh, are not helpful, are not conducive to uh, those uh, broader discussions. So they should not be viewed as, uh, as a substitute, right? They're, they're complements. Uh, that is uh, that that is certainly uh, a, a good uh, a good point. Um, now, I mean, what 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 we hear, right? I mean, this is the EU the EU position. The EU position is uh, that has been stated in on many occasions by uh, by the Commission, by the Commissioner, by you know by the different uh, heads of states. Uh, the EU position in this uh, e China uh, US fight is that yes we have uh, uh, we share a lot of things with uh, the United States uh, as far as uh, state-owned enterprises are concerned as far as uh, IPR is concerned so on the substance of uh, some of the complaints that the US has vis-a-vis -vis China we are we are very much uh, on the same in the same situation we share that on the other hand uh, we uh, do not share the US approach uh, which we regard as unilateral and not conducive to bring about a solution to a real problem. Right? This is this is the EU. Uh, this is the EU position. Sounds to me personally uh, a good uh, a good position. Uh, I share I share that, uh, that 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 position. Then the question is, you know, how do you translate that position into actual action? Okay, so are you a bystander saying, well, you know, uh, one point for you and one point for you, or minus one for you and minus one for the other, and then, you know, you, you, you keep watching the, the, the game, or 
uh, are you engaging in a different uh, manner? Uh, now, uh, question, question to all of the, uh, of the panelists. Um, and concrete question. Uh, we are engaged in principle. Uh, you know, Kate, you spoke about TTIP in a previous life, uh, but in the current life, there is, in principle, some kind of uh, framework for a bilateral uh, negotiation uh, with the US. I remember that Parliament had some hesitation uh, about uh, that, but, you know, okay, uh, uh, in principle, we have that, but nothing is going on, right? Uh, and equally with China, uh, we have, with the EU, we have for several years a negotiation on investment. And the investment negotiation tackles some of those issues here. So uh, do you think that uh, those bilateral discussions with the US on the one hand and with China on the other, with the US on trade, with the China on investment, can be part of the EU contribution, or uh, is that not going anywhere? So let, let me just hear. Uh, Reza, uh, here, please take. Deprive you of the, of the chair's privilege. Um, from a macro point of view, I think one, ha one needs to go much further. The, the reality is, is twofold. One, there are these uh, trade tensions and which are exacerbating uncertainty, but there are domestic issues in almost each, uh, in each of the major economies which also necessitate policy action. And given the fragility in the global economy right now, there is, of course, a lot of focus on what the Fed would do given its, its importance for global markets. But I think there is a need to look beyond trade issues in the short run in, in Europe. I think those trade tensions exacerbate the pressure, uh, but, but some of the solutions in terms of dealing with the problem of the uncertainty are here. If uncertainty has gone up, it means what economists call equilibrium interest rates are lower now. There is a case for lower interest rates, but more importantly, given the large trade surplus in Europe, I think Europe will be economically and politically in a much stronger position uh, in expressing views on, on trade if there is fiscal expansion in Europe in order to uh, reduce that, uh, that, that trade imbalance. I think it's necessary from a macro point of view. It's necessary in terms of having the moral authority on the trade issues. Alicia. Yeah. As a macroeconomist as well, everything is relative. We can, of course, do more fiscal. Others could do less. That would help their current account deficit. Because it's, it's just, you know, having a surplus is a reflection of a deficit somewhere else. And we could also analyze why others have a deficit. We don't only need to analyze why we have a surplus. And I just think, frankly, that U.S. saving ratio is extremely low. Ours is between China and the U.S. I mean, you know, we, we could argue we have a problem, but certainly the extremes may have more of a problem. So when I see that, I just just think that if I had that level of savings, 
I wouldn't do a fiscal stimulus. We could do one, certainly, but the point is the relative stimulus. And where we are now is that, in my humble opinion, the country who didn't need a stimulus did it. Those Europe, I mean, <laughs> we needed it, we didn't do it. But it's not only Europe. It's, it, we, I mean, we Europeans love, I don't know whether we feel victims, but I can assure you, as a European living very far, I always feel that we always blame everything on ourselves. But actually, we are in the middle in the saving ratio. And I, I need to, ask, uh, to answer the question because, you know, the, the, the bilateral investment agreement, will Merkel go and say, yes, fine with me, maybe, but this is a European-level bilateral investment agreement. And I've seen this before. In 2014, with Karl de Gucht as a trade commissioner, who happened to bring China to the WTO, and, and there were two uh, concomitant cases, CTE, I remember, and solar panels, and there you go, Xi Jinping, which who had just come to power, kindly visited uh, Madame Merkel, President Merkel, and you know. So basically, I hope that this is decided at the European level because that's the whole point. The whole point is to have a bilateral investment agreement that makes sense for all and that we are very comfortable with because there's a lot of uh, thorny issues there, one being, of course, the role of state-owned companies, which relate, as, as Andrew was saying, to a potential reform for WTO. So in other words, if we get that right, that could be a model on the multilateral setting to deal with that specific issue, which is very important both for Europe and the US. So in that regard, I hope that we don't water down our expectations by bilateral agreements. I understand bilateral discussions are important if they, if they stop at discussions, but they don't basically go beyond uh, the discussion to a decision level, which should lie uh, at the European Commission at this point in time. Yep. So I'm a professor in economics, so I will focus on academic research in terms of uh, trade and outside trade, number one. I'll give you an example. Global value chain matters, not bilateral, multinational. Think about Airbus, also European very proud of. Every part of a machine, part of an in instrument coming from France, Germany, China, Russia, every single world, or US of course as well. So it's very hard to differentiate the end once we leave globalization 2.0, follow global value chain, number one. Number two, a lot of things outside the trade, more important, which currency trade is based on. I just come back ECB, very important, the rule of Euro. Euro as international currency in, in terms of goods trade. For example, I'm a big fan of Balolo. Previously, I have to buy in dollar terms. Now, because you are China saying, the price goes up, I can buy. I, I use Euro, very simple. Euro as international currency. So we've got a benefit of getting involved in international monetary systems. It's a trade. It's important, we look at trade, and more important, behind the trade, under globalization 2.0. Thank you. Maybe the bilaterals. Yeah, yeah I won't I mean, maybe to just also pick up on a point that you raised, which is that we, we do hear from the EU and, and member state representatives that they share our diagnosis of the problem with China, uh, but not perhaps the, the approach in which we are undertaking the issue. And, and I think that's fine. I would prefer probably that the talking point be they share the diagnosis, but they have different tools to employ. We have different tools as, as governments. Of course, in the United States, we have much more unilateral authority. The European Union system 
and the relationship with the various member states and their relationships with China, it's, it's a bit more complex. But our view, of course, is that we should employ tools that we have or perhaps that, that new commission officials may be contemplating uh, to address this problem. And, and frankly, bilateral interaction with the Chinese is something that we both have been doing for a long period of time. Of course, we were negotiating a bilateral investment treaty for a very long time um, on many of the issues which came out in the, the Section 301 report. And, and regrettably, we did not feel that we were progressing in a way beneficial to our interests. And frankly, we, we communicated with the European Union throughout that process in ways to share information and to learn from each other. And, and so certainly the idea that you would sever bilateral engagement with China is, is not appropriate. And the idea remains that a, a China which fulfills the commitments it made to the WTO in 2001 and becomes a mature and, and fair trading partner remains our interest. Structural reform remains our interest and we're, we would like to use the tools that we have. We would like other trading partners to use the tools they have to get us to that point. Of course bilateral talks are helpful specifically uh, with the big elephants. But of course, everything has to be put on the table. You mentioned the surplus with goods. The United States had uh, surplus in services, uh, capital flow, investment, uh, transfer from profit. So everything has to be put on the table in bilateral talks. But of course, sometimes it's a little bit complicated to talk. And you mentioned the problem with the mandate we had in the parliament if there is a continuous threat. Well, we have the threat from the United States on steel tariffs, we have the threat not to have an understanding in Boeing uh, Airbus case, no negotiations at the moment about this, a solution for that. We have the threat with Spanish olives, we have the threat, threat with, with cars and car parts. So a little bit complicated to talk under threat. But nevertheless, of course, we are trying, and this is the goal, no doubt about, to have both under the tent, China and the United States. And of course, bilateral talks are helpful, and even we have the threat, it's necessary to talk. But sometimes it's also necessary to have a forum where these big elephants are not in the room. So we created this uh, Ottawa, uh, Ottawa Forum where some like-minded countries, by the way, also some countries on, from the developing world on the table to try to facilitate for this goal, everybody in the tent. Excellent. Uh, we can take uh, we can take two or three more questions. Uh, put you, you go ahead. You go ahead. Uh, thank you, Mr. Moderator. Can you um, please introduce yourself? I'm Mr. Baruti. I'm senior research uh, fellow within Research et Documentation Juridique Africaine. As you can uh, easily realize, I'm a lawyer, an academic lawyer. I don't have questions, but I want to comment on the topic uh, of trade. The first is that I confirm that even on my uh, uh, multilateral uh, dialogue, there is bilateral uh, uh, possibilities through, but it depends the way the big elephants are using the bilateral uh, relationship, because if there is problem, most of the time China starts to treat all the countries, developing countries, 
who have a bilateral relationship with China to treat them that you should adjust your position to, my, uh, to mine, otherwise I suspend a cooperation. That is the, the bad way to use bilateral relationship. The second point is about multilateralism itself. I agree that dialogue is possible, but we should uh, give a time for the implementation. It's not possible. It, we should make sure that after five or ten years, one country <coughs> came and say, "I withdraw. I decide to withdraw what, they, uh, in, in what I agree uh, before." Uh, uh, during uh, this uh, uh, session. That is, we should avoid, and it's a point to put in the next next year, United Nations uh, uh, summit on the uh, multilateralism. Most of the time, United, uh, USA and China threat to withdraw from some conversation is no good. Thank you. Can you just give the microphone? Next to you, yes. Hi, my name is Alan Beattie, and I write for the Financial Times. Um, I have a question about trade and the environment, which seems to be likely to be a big theme in the EU over the next few years, when you talk about a carbon border tax, uh, a much greener parliament, and so forth. Um, a question is, and threats indeed to, to deals like Mercosur because of uh, the Amazon. Um, my question is, to what extent is it feasible actually to use trade policy in the EU or elsewhere to export values or to export... Um, environmental rules, or will it simply load up trade policy to the point where it's actually just impossible to execute it? Um, very good question. Uh, just one last question here in the front. George. Thank you very much. George Sapari, National Bank of Hungary. I wanted to bring in two questions that are, I think is relevant but hasn't been discussed. One is trade diversion. Um, <clears throat> we are, you know, the, President Trump wants to the, the uh, car producers or some other producers to go back to the, to the United States. Some of them go to Vietnam, Malaysia. From Mexico, automakers are now looking for coming to Central and Eastern Europe. So what you achieve is um, maybe reducing the uh, current account surplus of China, but not bringing back the jobs to the United States. So that's one question, if you have a, uh, a reaction to that. And the second is, uh, you have to bring in the role of the US dollar. Now that trade is being used by the United States for uh, geopolitic purposes as well, and it gives the exorbitant privilege to the United States, the dollar, Within, the e within Europe, it has increased uh, the, uh, the thought that maybe the euro should be playing a bigger role. Now, of course, it will take a long time before that, uh, before that will happen. But again, the problem is that this trade war has actually started sinking and started movements in many, many other directions. That's my point. But if you have any reaction to that. Thank you. So I, I'm going to give now uh, just about a minute uh, to each uh, panelist to, uh, to pick uh, whatever he or she wishes to, but um, I can't resist, uh, again starting from this direction, I can't resist, Bernd, to ask you, or to repeat in a sense the, 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 the question from uh, Alan Beatty on uh, 
on the carbon, uh, the border carbon tax. Uh, the new uh, president of the Commission uh, has put uh, the Green Deal at the top of her uh, agenda. And uh, we heard uh, when she made a speech at the European Parliament uh, that she did um, detail essentially a strategy. It was not just a Green Deal. She, she gave a number of, of details, and in those details there was indeed uh, the proposal uh, to uh, put forward um, legislation, I suppose, uh, for uh, carbon, uh, border carbon tax. Uh, do you have a reaction to that? Alan, we just discussed the other part of the question uh, several times. These are not European values. The question of the Paris Climate Agreement is a universal value, or the ILO Convention are universal con uh, um, conventions. Uh, so we are sticking to the universal perspective of mankind, and this is really important that this is respected by trade agreements. And one of the elements is indeed the Paris Climate Agreement, and we have to reflect how we can have a dialogue with our partners in respecting uh, the uh, commitments made in Paris. And one measure could be some border uh, measurements. I'm not sure that tax will be the end of the day. We will examine now uh, the different proposals. First, it's clear, and this is also related to our discussion, it has to be WTO compatible. That's the first uh, criteria which has to be fulfilled. Secondly, um, it's also the question what will happen if some products, some member state, uh, some partners will have better CO2 performance than the European Union. Will they get some money from the European Union too? So there are a lot of questions to discuss. We will do it really seriously and will come up with a proposal and then of course the European Parliament will optimize uh, the proposal as usual. Kate, whichever point you want sure, to take. Maybe, maybe in the same veins. I mean, you know, of course the United States has placed a very high value on environmental and labor standards in its FTAs. And, you know, in some ways our FTA commitments certainly post-2007 when our Congress issued new guidance on the inclusion of these types of proposals. The US FTA model is, is arguably the strongest in terms of enforcement and in, in compelling our trading partners to actually take on board the commitments they make to us in our FTAs. And we back that up by the possibility of trade sanctions on par with the rest of our agreement. And that's something that we believe has worked. Um, there's a lot of evidence of our discussions, particularly with countries in Latin America in terms of these very issues. Now, what is important, I think, to understand, and this is, is relevant to a Democrat administration, one that supports the Paris Climate Agreement and perhaps one that doesn't, is that our Congress, which ultimately gives us the authority to negotiate trade agreements, has been quite explicit uh, on this point, and including lots of geopolitical and geostrategic um, interests, whether or not they are interests of the US Congress or not, there is a very strong uh, commitment in our trade promotion authority that there has to be a direct relationship to trade flows. And so for that reason, the Congress has found repeatedly that including very broad treaty mandates into a trade negotiation is not going to be something that the Congress supports. And that drives the way that we look at these issues from a trade perspective. 
Let me start with the last question about inter international currency. My recent work with uh, Richard Portes and Len Ray, we tried to find out the euro and RMB or another international currency have some benefit. Number one, reduce, reduce the trading, transaction cost for tradings, number one. Number two, more importantly, we look at whole euro area, saving money's investment. Once the euro becomes international currency, the funding costs decline dramatically. So it's promoting for investment as well. So the rule of a euro as an international currency have a very bright you know, future and have a lot of uh, academia policy discussion for that. Secondly, about environment, I do want one paper. We try to understand why Chinese firm responds to regulation for environment. We do find out from change technologies, the increased TFP, increased performance after the environment regulations, which more tough regulation for the environment. The firm can respond. We cannot, you know, a lot of research try to look at saving money's investment. Uh, very simple countries, the country I live, Switzerland, saving money minus investment is higher than China right now. Because after global financial crisis, the China grows. If you go to China, it's a new phenomenon. It's consumptions, e-commerce, fintech lendings, household debt. So a lot of new issues, new phenomena deserve very careful, serious research. And uh, maybe next time I can present uh, a paper here. Thank you. Yeah, maybe I take from here and I answer your Sabari's question. Y yes, uh, saving minus investment higher in Europe and Switzerland, but the level is lower, meaning your level of saving, your level in of investment is still too high. And thus your return on assets is too low. And thus your overcapacity is not ending. And thus we still have problems, especially right here and, and in Europe. So it's not only about the difference, it's about the level that, that creates issues. And I actually think that by lowering that level, which would lower your growth rate, unfortunately, which seems to be the one and only target, would actually be a good thing for China and the world because you would indeed, maybe with some bumps in your growth rate, but towards a more consumer uh, cons consumption-based uh, growth model. So, so that's what I'm saying. That, that And by the way, some, it's not only Europe or Switzerland. Japan, Taiwan, Korea have large current account surpluses. And by the way, maybe, maybe structurally, some countries are more productive than others. Maybe we have to live with that idea. I'm, I'm, so, uh, and going back to that, I agree. Trade war won't solve the US trade deficit. I'm sorry because that surplus may, may move from China to Vietnam to Taiwan to, you know, you need to solve it at home because it's not only due to, um, it's not only due to, to um, distortions. You just have to look at it, it's, it's due to many other things. Part of that may be due to distortions, let's solve those problems, but it may appear somewhere else. China's, uh, so the, the moving, the transfer of the value chain away from China started well before the trade war. And it's very simple. Wages are too high for some products. The value chain in China is becoming more integrated and higher value added. So whatever is below a certain level is being pushed elsewhere. Not only from Europe or the US, but also from China. So, so that's the new world. I mean, it, it, there will always be a place cheaper than you. I mean, that, that's the reality. So there will always be places where something can be produced and, and you can't solve that with tariffs. It's just not, it's not possible. Move up and try to produce stuff that others can't do. That's a much better idea, I feel. Yeah. That's what my old professor Bella Balassa called the ladder of comparative advantage. Sure. 
Always moving along the ladder. Reza, the last points are for you. I think I agreed with a lot of what has just been said, particularly by Alicia, but uh, two points. First, on the uh, inter international role of the dollar and any substitute. I think it is unrealistic to think of RMB until you have an open capital account in China. You need to be able to invest in China and for Chinese uh, citizens to invest abroad in order to have a, any notion of an internationalization in a, in a uh, major way. In terms of the euro, obviously, euro does have that quality, but I give you just one statistics. What you do need is a, a large depth in the financial markets, uh, which, of course, with Brexit, it, uh, it is damaged in, in Europe. Uh, just give you one statistics. The daily turnover in the treasury market in the US is 600 billion. Uh, uh, the safest assets in Europe, German bonds, the daily turnover is less than 20. So that doesn't give you a depth of the market in order for to hold that as an international uh, uh, reserve currency of uh, that would be dominant. So there's a long way to go. There is good work being done, particularly by Google. My final word, I think the, uh, the, the global economy uh, and the global financial markets are in a fragile and the degree of uncertainty is very high. And it does not usually take one single event to tip it into uh, a difficult situation or a more difficult situation, but trade disputes at this point in time definitely have that potential. So uh, we are coming to a conclusion of this uh, of this panel. I'd like to thank all of the uh, of the panelists. I think it was great to have uh, both the, the trade perspective and you know the discussion about the usual trade wonk kind of uh, matters, but to put that also in a uh, macroeconomic perspective, which I think is very much needed uh, at the time, as for the reasons that have been indicated. So wish you a good lunch and uh, thank you to uh, all the panelists.